Prisoner of War. That's the title of Brian Johnston's talk to us today, and it's an arresting subject, if you'll excuse the pun, so stay and enjoy it with us, please. This is John Martin welcoming you to our Search for Truth programme. Brian's been leading us through a series of studies on the journeys of the Ark, and the whole series of 12 talks has been published as an attractive book. I'll tell you how to obtain it later after Brian's talk. Now, before Brian speaks to us, let's enjoy the well-known hymn, More About Jesus Would I Know, More of His Grace to Others Show, More of His Saving Fullness See, More of His Love Who Died for Me. As we mentioned last time, it appears that from the time of Joshua 18 onwards, the Ark of the Covenant was stationed at Shiloh. Shiloh had been deliberately chosen by God as his first dwelling place in the land of promise. Jeremiah 7 and 12 says, Shiloh, where I cause my name to dwell at the first. It's there that we read of young Samuel growing up before the Lord. We read of Samuel settling down to sleep before the light of the lampstand in the tabernacle went out. That's actually quite a telling statement of those days, for the lamps were supposed to burn through the night until the morning. But things had gradually begun to fall by the wayside, and it seemed that the whole vision of God living among his people, as symbolised in the ark, had begun to grow dim with the passage of years. It was flickering and going out, just like the lamps. Eli, the old priest, was letting standards slip in his own family circle. Yet in all the darkness of those times, there was one bright light on the horizon. His name was Samuel. God had provided him to bring again better days for the people of God. We read of him lying down to sleep in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Samuel was living close by the ark. That's where he was when God spoke to him. If we too live close to Christ, we won't fail to hear his voice. Now when the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord, the message was a message of judgment. Because Eli hadn't judged his sons, God would not only judge them, but also judge the people as well. How it all came about makes solemn reading. Their enemy, the Philistines, came to war against Israel. In the first round of engagement, 
Israel came off worst. They held a post-mortem, but never prayed about it. They designed their own strategy of deliverance. They fetched the Ark of God from the tabernacle at Shiloh and brought it to the battlefield. There came a great buzz of expectancy throughout the Israelite camp, for now God was with them, or so they thought. However, the unthinkable happened. The battle again went disastrously wrong. Eli's sons, who were accompanying the ark as priests, were killed, and the sacred ark itself was captured by the pagan Philistines. Imagine it, God's holy ark, taken as a Philistine prisoner of war. But worst of all was the fact that God's presence left Shiloh altogether. It's to this time that the words of Psalm 78 apply. Verse 60 onward says, So that he, that's God, forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed amongst men, and delivered his strength into captivity, that's a reference to the ark, and his glory into the adversary's hand. What had gone wrong? They had thought more of the ark than of God himself. They looked to the sacred chest to bring them victory by its presence on the battlefield. They revered the external form of their religion, but had lost real spiritual connection with God. Like those about whom Paul later wrote to Timothy, they held a form of godliness, but had denied the power of it. We find something similar in the story of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. When he laid the prophet's staff on the face of a dead child, it had no effect. The raising of the child had to await the arrival of Elisha himself. Then in the next chapter, after Elisha has healed Naaman of his leprosy and refused to take a present from him, we find Gehazi sneaking out after Naaman to obtain some of the offered wealth for himself. The facts seem to fit Paul's description to Timothy of those who are lovers of money, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Gehazi embodies that kind of greedy, power-denying form, a mere external form of religion without inner substance or reality. In contrast, there were believers in Rome to whom Paul wrote in chapter 6 who were obeying from the heart that form of doctrine to which they'd been delivered. It's our duty to ensure by God's help that the form of teaching we find in the New Testament isn't practised by us in such a way that it becomes a mere impotent form, an institutionalised form, a fossilised form. This is the kind of thing we were thinking about with Israel and the Ark of God when they thought to take it into battle, when they looked to the sacred chest to bring them victory by its presence on the battlefield. They revered the external form of their religion but had lost real spiritual connection with God. The lessons for us are obvious, aren't they? We must beware of slipping into a powerless, rigid formality or legalism which knows or experiences little of the power and presence of the risen Christ. That's a recipe for defeat wherever and whenever it occurs. But God is certainly not powerless, although our experience of him may be. That was what the Philistines in turn were to discover. For wherever the ark went, Throughout their territory, 
it brought plague and mayhem. When they put it into the house and temple of their god, Dagon, they found the idol smashed on the floor in front of it. For what communion has light with darkness? And Dagon, the fish god, was definitely deep darkness, for we're told this was just another form of the old Babylonian mystery religion, so opposed to God and hated by God. The ark wouldn't be allowed to remain there for long. It would have to be separated from these things. The temple of God has no fellowship with idols. This is a far-reaching principle, and one which the Apostle Paul expressed to believers in the church of God at Corinth as he wrote his second letter to them. He warns, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. These were believers living in New Testament times in the midst of a pagan culture. One of the big issues which surfaces in Paul's letters to them is about the business of eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Food that had been used as part of pagan religious rituals was often sold off cheaply, it seems, making it an attractive buy. But was it right for a Christian to buy it and eat it? Basically, Paul says they can, so long as they're clear in their minds about the evil of idolatry and have nothing to do with it, and so long as they give no offence to anyone else in eating the food. But it would be serious wrong for the believers to associate themselves with any of the pagan rituals and eat the same food in that way. Paul condemned eating with consciousness of the idol, for eating the food as a thing offered to an idol was clearly wrong, for the reason that sacrificing to idols involves fellowship with demons. So if a pagan neighbour had asked one of those Corinthian Christians to join him or her in an idol feast at a pagan temple, something which would have been quite a socially acceptable thing there in those times, the believer would be able to recall Paul's words from the Lord, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So this is a far-reaching principle which the story of the Ark of God in the Philistine temple has brought us on to. May God help us to live close to the Lord, to hear his voice, to catch the vision of his dwelling with us on the earth, the holy temple of Ephesians 2 and 21, and so to be separate from all that's contrary to his will for us. God is still calling, come out and be separate. Show me to
you for being with us today. As I said earlier, there's a transcript book available of the 12 study talks in this series. If you send for it, you'll be able to get more out of the radio talks by reading and studying its contents. It's available online and either you can get it yourself by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media or if you're not able to do that and you need to request a hard copy book just write in and ask for the title The Journey of the Ark. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. It's been a pleasure to enjoy your company today and thank you. Now I do trust that you're finding these programmes helpful. If you have any questions or suggestions how these programmes might be made more helpful, then please write in and Brian will be pleased to correspond with you. Until we see you next time then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon and in the meantime, we wish you God's richest blessings. <laughs>